This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm your host, Amy Allison. Today I'm back in the Bay, Oaktown to be specific, speaking with Good Muslim, Bad Muslim co-host Taz Ahmed. Taz Ahmed is an activist, storyteller, and politico based in L.A., An electoral organizer by trade, she's mobilized thousands of Asian American and Pacific Islanders to the polls in 17 different languages in the past 15 years. It may sound like she's old, but uh, (laughs) I guarantee she is not. She founded South Asian American Voting Youth, which is a national organization to have for youth to have a political voice and get involved in politics. She's an experienced campaign trainer and has done a lot. We're going to talk about her podcast, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. And a shout out to your co-host, Zara, who's not here with us today. No, just, she has laryngitis. Yeah, she has. Okay, so she couldn't talk even if she was yeah. <laughs> here here in the studio. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Democracy in Color. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. And I have to just, first of all, good Muslim, bad Muslim, why did you call it that? You know, it was a joke. We started it because um, we, we called it Good Muslim, Bad Muslim because we were going back and forth on Twitter. I had met Zara through the book Love Inshallah, The Secret Love Lives of American Muslim Women. And we would just we would just joke around with each other. We were like, all right, next time on this fictitious podcast called Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, we're going to talk about burqa bikinis. And we were just being super outrageous uh, and coming up with contradictions. And people kept asking us where... They could listen to our podcast, and we were like, we were totally making fun of the fact that podcasts have these really ridiculous topics, and we're like, all right, people are asking for it, so we're going to do it. That's kind of where it came from. What is the secret love life of Muslim women? It is everything. Everything and uh, everything possible. It's an anthology of 25 real-life stories by American Muslim women, and it came out in... believe 2011. It's a book. It's a book, yeah. I thought you were about to tell me something. No, no, no. no I can no, read no. it. Yeah, you can read it. You can get it. It's uh, it's called Love, Inshallah. How did you get into this in the first place in terms of you know, talking about the experience of Muslim women? I used to write on a blog called Sepia Mutiny. You know how I actually got into it was like I grew up in the mid-2000s when everyone had a blog. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember. There was a period of time where every everyone had a blog spot. Oh, Blogspot. This is yeah. before WordPress. This oh, is totally. Like... Totally before WordPress. Okay. Everyone had a Blogspot or they had like a live journal. So back then um, I had a blog and I was really into following this blog called Sepia Mutiny, which was a group blog. And um, we would, the site would write about everything having to do with South Asian Americans. And at the time there was no other resource, no other way to figure out what was happening with Brown America. And I started off on that site as a guest blogger, and then eventually I became a regular blogger for the site. And for me, I was getting my political education through school and through activism, but writing was so important for me to also figure out what my voice was as a brown American. And you came up at a time when Islamophobia was just kind of oh, taking absolutely. hold. What, what was that like for you, and you know, how, how did that impact your work? Yeah, I mean, I started out as an environmental organizer. When I, I the story I've been telling people is that when I first started organizing, I didn't see myself as a person of color. I thought I was just, you know, I didn't like people. I liked trees. I was going to save the world by saving trees. And um, I was involved with this organization called Enviro Citizen, and we would train young environmental activists on college campuses to vote to have that power for uh, the environment. 
I moved to D.C. And three months after I moved to D.C. was when September 11th happened. And I knew when I saw the towers falling, I, I, I didn't even go into the office. My coworker called me and was like, don't come into the office. Everything's, you know, things are happening. I don't know if you remember Pentagon. There's the, I mean, there was the, the fire, plane crashed the plane into. Crashes. Yeah, we talk about that now um, like it's ancient history. Yeah, but, uh, it's only 15 years ago. Yeah. 17. Was it a moment like a before and after oh, yeah, the world was to change? And for me, it was like when I saw the towers falling, I was like, okay, this is going to be my existence as brown American. It's completely going to change. But you said you didn't look at yourself as a person of color. And then I had to. And I think that was like that was like that moment where I was just like, oh. Well, I, I, I do have to give credit to the organization I was working for at the time, too, because we were doing People of Color Only Environmental Justice Academy. And that also, like, being in an organization which was so so um, intentionally reaching out to people of color had made me have to address myself as a person of color. And then being there and then being at this organization on September 11th, all of that combined. I So I ended up starting Savvy, South Asian American Voting Youth, a couple years after that. I just gained all the skills in the youth voting movement, and I didn't see anyone doing that for South Asian Americans. And I started... Um, this organization in 2003 for the 2004 elections, and we had campaigns going in Michigan, New York, Georgia, and Florida, mm-hmm. and it was uh, it was an amazing experience for me to understand what it meant to have political power and create political power for South Asians and Muslims in America. I mean, South Asians and Muslims. So the mm-hmm. South, South Asian communities got religious diversity. Yeah. Muslim, a third of Muslims in this country are African American. Totally. It's a it's a really broad big tent. Yeah. Yeah. I started I called it savvy South Asian American voting youth because I felt that how people were being perceived as brown America um it didn't matter what the religion was, if you were brown, you were being attacked for being Muslim. And I wanted to create um this kind of uh, organization which built up brown power. I don't know if I don't know if it worked the way I had wanted it to. I think it did work. I just don't think that it's it's maintained um, because last month in Kansas we saw two Indian men getting attacked um, by a white supremacist who said that he thought he was murdering two Iranians. One of them died. And it's uh, it really brought me back to 16 years ago when we were thinking about what does it mean to be brown in America. So that's a conversation that's ongoing in the South Asian community. There's always kind of like this tug back and forth between, you know, the privileged folks within South Asian America um, trying to distance themselves from Muslim America. And it's a complicated question. Yeah. But how do you try to bring people together to understand each other? Or is it even possible? I mean, there's a class difference, religious difference. Yeah, something. there's class difference, religious difference, regional difference, um, immigration difference. You know, people are coming at different waves of immigration. People are coming with different kinds of visas. So people are coming in as either doctors or they're coming in as low-wage workers. So there's so many different things happening that it is difficult to actually figure out what that South Asian narrative is. Um and I think for me, for me, I've been playing on the margins of a lot of different spaces. So as a Bangladeshi American, I'm not Indian American, but I'm playing in this realm of South Asian American, kind of on that margin. And then I do a lot of Asian American work. So within the Asian American community, South Asians are kind of in the margin. And then in the people of color space, I feel like Asian Americans are in the margins of that. So in a lot of different 
identity politics spaces when it comes to being a person of color, I feel like I'm often uh, playing this kind of like on the margins roles and trying to figure out how to re push push people to think differently. I often think what it is to be Muslim right now, mm-hmm. uh, 2017, because you were talking about 16 years ago, but we now have a president and a party that is, is like open season on Muslims. And oh, it's, it's totally open season. It's scary. It's a very frightening time. Um, the thing that is different about what's happening now than was what was happening 16 years ago was that Back then, I feel like it was very reactionary. People, Patriot Act came out immediately afterwards. FBI was going to everyone's houses really quickly. You know, there's no fly list. What we see now is this systematic oppression of our people. And I I call it the fear industrial complex because it's a $208 million industry. They said that between 2008 and 2013, $208 million went into pushing this Islamophobia complex. And that money went into funding 74 organizations. And when you think of it that way, you think of it, it's actually a systemized oppression of people. Then then you realize that it's not really about like having one conversation with someone in middle America. It's about confronting this media, this machine that's creating all these people to have this fear which is either explicit or implicit. And, um, I mean, we've seen it in America with all different kinds of races. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I was just, you know, you mentioned the this high-profile attack um, that happened uh, just a few weeks ago, but we were seeing evidence of it, of anti-Muslim rhetoric, what people are talking about, what people are saying. I don't know, you know, heard other things or some of your friends and what the experience is for you and your friends in terms of um, uh, what the reality is for being Muslim in this country right now. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, well, you live in Los Angeles. Yeah. You know, it might not be like that there. You know, the, those of us who live in these urban centers are like, well, it's not like that here. But that's actually maybe not. Yeah, I, it's true. not true because the mosque in Los Angeles, one of the main mosques, the Islamic Center of Southern California, had a white supremacist plan and attack on the mosque. He had stockpiled all this ammunition and had was planning an attack. He got caught two weeks before the attack was supposed to happen. But that, that kind of story is happening all the time. Um, the mosque uh, in Upland uh, three years ago had pig's feet thrown at it. The mosque in Temecula had... Um, they had people standing outside with dogs because they had heard that Muslims don't like dogs. Um, there's like a lot of myths that are being perpetuated too. And so, I mean, the, the fear industrial complex is, is pretty deep in California just because there's a lot of people there and there's a lot of people that intake alt-right media and, uh, we have Orange County. So we have a lot of folks in Orange County. Right. Do, Do you, do you feel though, um... A sense of solidarity with other groups who aren't Muslim, and what does that look like? And- oh yeah, it's it's been beautiful to see. You know, the story that I've been telling people is that when the Muslim ban happened, and everyone went to the airport, were I you at the airport? Was not at the airport. Oh, because I was too scared. Because I knew that that for me as a Muslim, for me as a visible Muslim being brown, that if I went to the airport, I could have been pulled out, and who knows what what would have happened then, and. You know, I 
I don't shy from protests. I go to protests anytime there's something happening. I believe strongly in the need to stand in solidarity. But in this one situation, I was like, man, I don't know if this is my time to be the one putting my life on the line when this is about my life being put on the line. So I was the person that was stayed behind and I like was checking WhatsApp. I had everyone's social security numbers. I had everyone's phone numbers. You know, like I was the person kind of like uh, keeping an eye on uh, my people that were at the at the protest. But I think that's that's what solidarity is supposed to look like. This is how we stand in solidarity and this is how we stand in alliance with each other is that we stand up when it's not our body that's on the line. We're supposed to be there for each other. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely beautiful to see. We saw, I believe the number was something like 7,000 or 10,000 at LAX and everyone came out and it was amazing. And I think that's, that's what we need. We need more of that. We need more people standing yeah. up. It, 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 there's a resistance and there's people who showed up at the airports, which mm-hmm. is, I think, just indicative of the vibrancy of the resistance movement, you Absolutely. know, that you see. But, you know, we're also looking at the courts. Uh, yeah. Are you following what's happening at the courts? Because it seems like they're the last line of defense. <laughs> just, I, I followed the Muslim woman that was found in the Hudson River, the Muslim judge. Okay. What do we know about that case right now? Um, right now, it looks like she... Well, she was the first Muslim judge. woman mm-hmm. to be a judge. Yeah. She did a lot of work that was um, anti-police brutality. Um, and I believe she also did stuff to make it easier for for gay parents to adopt. Um, and she and I, th- I believe some of the news cycles are saying that she committed suicide, but I, I don't believe that. I mean, they say that about... The, the the boy that was found lynched in Seattle, right? Like, outside of Washington, there was a young black boy, and they were saying that it was suicide. Like, all of these, like, every time anyone says a suicide and a person, it's a person of color, I'm like, I don't know about that. Even on Facebook today, there was uh, a lawyer who's head of a very pretty prominent legal organization just saying, hey, if you find me, you yeah. know, it wasn't suicide. And I remember there was a spate of these kind of posts after Sandra Bland was found Absolutely. dead in this uh, jail cell. It's... It really does speak to the kind of fear that's yeah, out there right now. Yeah, it's absolutely scary. Yeah. And I, um, she was also African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, her life mattered. She was in her 60s. So she was, yeah. you know, there was a lot, a lot of this, a, a lot of this. And the fact that we don't really know or trust um, what's going on. Yeah. You know, it's scary. What do you, you know, I, last time I was in New York was right after the inauguration and the Women's March. And uh, I saw Linda Sarsour, both, uh, who's a, uh, probably one of the most famous uh, Muslim Americans, she's Palestinian, uh, spokespeople uh, for the resistance. And um, she was one of the co-chairs of the Women's March. And, you know, I saw her say, no matter what, I stand in solidarity and I'm not afraid. So do you feel less afraid now after, you know, a couple months after the um, uh, protests in the airport? Uh, no. Now, Linda Strasser is amazing. Um, her ability to stand the way she does. She gets a lot of hate hate thrown in her direction, too. Um, so God bless that woman. Um, do I feel stronger? Is that what you're asking? Do I, I mean, I'm, I feel a lot of fear. Like, we just dropped the biggest non-nuclear bomb that in our arsenal in Afghanistan, that's let, just. Let me let me ask you about that because 
people call it the mother of all bombs, but there's nothing about being a mother that's about that level of destruction. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not an unbiased person. People know I'm opposed yeah. to this kind of war and, and violence and I, Afghanistan's also a place that's more than more than half of the people are under 18. So it's mm-hmm. a it's a country of children, um, a lot of children. Yeah. So, uh, I, how do you take that in? I yeah, I've been having a hard time taking in the news this week. I have to say, there's been the way it's. I mean, on top of this, the judge that was found, this bombing, the Syria bombing that happened last week. There was a a woman who covered her head in Milwaukee who was attacked by a man that was trying to take off her hijab. So it goes all the way from this these micro it goes from like micro attacks to like huge bombardment of brown people and it's just perpetuating this this fear of the brown, fear of brown people and it, it it's ridiculous to think that if we can bomb Syria and Afghanistan, that it's not going to have repercussions on us. and But also, like, it's it's not even just about, like, defending just brown people. It's just, like, we shouldn't be bombing people, period. Like, it should be, it should, we should believe in each other's humanity and just figure out how to live in a just society. So you're actually a poet. Yeah, I write. Um, I'm, a, I'm a nonfiction essayist and a poet. Mm-hmm. And I had a column called Radical Love. That went on for a couple of years, um, and I I have a chapbook that just came out called M Dash and Ellipses, and I'm in this book, Good Girls Marry Doctors. So I I try to write. Yeah. 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 Well, um, you're you're performing all the time. Yes, I um, perform when I have new stuff. It's actually been kind of hard to write given this trauma that Muslim people are being put through. But um, wait, tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, like, I think after Trump got elected, you know how people, like, write to process? Mm-hmm. I felt so stifled. My creativity was stifled. And I haven't been—it was really hard to get back to writing. Um, and I've recently started up again, but I think I'm only doing it because, you know, there's this need for Muslims to be visible in this time of crisis. So I've been writing a lot about being Muslim in America. Um and I'll be performing actually at Manzanar uh, soon in a couple of weeks. The, well, the internment camp. The internment camp, and it's where a lot of the West Coast Japanese Americans were interned in the early 1940s. They um, they put them in these you know cabins. I don't know for how long it was. I read I heard somewhere it was something like 200,000. I could be wrong. Uh, citizens, non-citizens, and. Um, the community in L.A., there's a large Japanese-American community. They have been doing these pilgrimages with the Muslim-American community in L.A. for a while, I think ever since September 11th. Really? Yeah. Just as a show of solidarity. As a show of solidarity. And uh, I'll be performing at this year's pilgrimage. I'm really mm. excited about that. Um, Would you read something for us? Yeah. I'll read you a piece that I wrote for my Japanese-American friends. And a little context about this is that my grandfather um, was also in a camp uh, in 1971 when Bangladesh was gaining its independence from Pakistan. So there's this big civil war. And at the time, my grandfather was living in in Lahore. He was living there 
uh, as a Bangladeshi or Bengali in, in teaching. And so they had uh, put him in a camp. So this poem that I'm about to read is um, drawing parallels between my grand- grandfather and the grandparents of my friends who are Japanese-American. And I called it If Our Grandparents Could Meet. Maybe our grandfathers could have shared notes about the type of barbed wires that spiraled around and kept them caged in like animals. Was it jagged aluminum or razored steel or broken glass? Maybe they talk about how the moonlight through the barred windows shines stripes on dirt floors, about the blandness of the food they were fed, devoid of the flavors of home, and how they went quietly without putting up a fight, how they were taken on a long ride across the desert in the middle of the night. Maybe my grandfather's camp outside of Lahore had taken notes from the camps of Manzanar on how to make enemies of innocent citizens. Maybe war is tripped on a universal language and stifling independence is shot with the same brand of bullets. Maybe our grandmothers could have hugged over longing and long-lost loved ones. They could have traded notes on how to raise children with stability when the future is uncertain. Maybe they could have traded motherland seeds and tips on how to bring to life the tropics and desert sands and recipes on rations, maybe curry. Maybe they all could have whispered meditations, prayers, and doas that were said to keep them alive and safe. Maybe they could have traded protection amulets and lucky charms. Maybe they wondered why it wasn't enough. Maybe they'd joke about the improbably places they found beauty. Or maybe they'd block the memories and ached muscles remembered what they tried to forget. Maybe we are the same, at least same, same. Our legacy liberations on parallel paths. And what might happen now to me is what happened before to you, is what happened before to me and so on, and so on. We walk in each other's shadows. Maybe together we can stop it from happening anymore. Thank you, that is so beautiful. Hard to write? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was definitely very difficult. I've been thinking about how, I've been thinking about how trauma stays in your blood, right? Like if you we, when we talk about this, about the African-American experience, about how this this legacy of being brought over here as slaves. Well, there's and, scientific evidence yes. that trauma is passed down exactly. through your DNA, right? Yeah, and I was yeah. thinking about, you know, my grandfather during the 1940s had to flee um, India to where he was going to school in Kolkata. He had to flee with everything and what was in his bag. And then when this happened in 1971, my mom had to flee with everything that was in her bag. And I can't help but think, am I going to have to do that? Am I going to have to figure out what is going to be my go bag? What am I going to take with me? Is it all that I can carry? And you hear these stories from these internees who are still alive. They're still... It's going, not that long ago. It's not that long ago, 1940s. And they're talking about their stories. They're talking about how they had to leave with everything in their bags. They're talking about how when they came back to the houses that the houses were gone, that they had to find someone who was not Japanese to, like, keep the house for them. They just lost everything. And if the executive order 9066, which wasn't done away with, if that one's still in place, 
someone like a fascist president could bring it back up again. And it, it's something to be concerned about, especially if he's going to keep pushing the Muslim ban or Muslim ban two and bombing brown people. Like, it's it's going to happen. He's trying to incite a war so that he can keep his power, so that he can and, and use brown people to be his punching bag so that he can keep his power. And so you work on organizing. Yes. That's where you take that energy. I mean, obviously, the energy, <laughs> um, some of that uh, goes into your uh, creative work, your poetry. Um, and and it sounds it's like a very different energy to then go and organize. And what, what do you do? You're, you're with 18 Million Rising, which is the largest, yeah. largest online uh Advocacy group, political advocacy group for Asian Pacific Islanders. So, yes, yes. Yeah. I, I was wondering where you were going to go with that. It's yeah. like, we're not the largest advocacy group. Yeah, we are one of the main, uh, I think we are one of the only ones that I know of as far as what we do. We do digital online organizing. Which we, means emails, sign up, you know, email, sign a, you know, yeah. We do memes. We do. Wait, what meme have, meme have you done? Like, which did, I used to call meme meme because memes. I didn't even understand what it was like oh me meme can you create <laughs> gifs, <laughs> gifs gifs uh, uh you create them so what's a recent one yeah our organization creates them um we did one about mulan they wanted to have they wanted to make a white protagonist in the new disney remake of mulan so we and that was because they all had white writers in the room so we did a we pushed back through our through an online campaign which was meme driven um with, with you think after Pepsi, uh, that horrible commercial, that they would be like, <laughs> the writers would be like, because you're in L.A., there's lots of writers and lots of rooms yeah, of writers. Yeah, but they, they don't listen to people of color. Like, we try so hard to get them to listen, but they're not listening. Because, you know, you know, here's what I think about. Like, they uh, there's have been all these movies that came out where they use white females to play Asian-American characters. We just saw it. What's, what's the one out? It's Ghost. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah the one with... What's her name? They all look like. Can I say that? No, you can't say that because <laughs> that's not true of any people. Uh, it's um. What's her name? They like they had a conversation about trying to like Asian fire her face with uh with um CGI, but they ended up not doing. It. Anyways, that movie did terrible. It's out in the theaters now. Did terrible. But on the other hand, um. Oh my gosh, what's the other movie? Uh, the scary movie. That just came out, which did really, really good. I love this because I'm not the only one with a horrific memory. I have I a just, terrible talking, memory with movies. Get out. You're, like, talking, yeah, you're talking, talking about Get Out. out. Yeah. And I just saw Get Out. So Oh, my gosh. It was so good. And I was pondering. Wait, is this a spoiler? Ah, most people have seen it, right? They better have seen it by now. Okay. Why was there one Asian I know. character? I know. And I had to go back and like read my think pieces. Oh, yeah. Because that just, there were so that many just think pieces. twisted my mind. And um, for those of you, hey, listen. If you haven't seen the movie, Get Out, yeah. you should see it because it'll blow your mind on like 40 levels. Yeah. But there's one Asian character yeah. in a world that's black and white, essentially. Yeah. And what, what did the think pieces what say? Was it, well, I'm not the one who works for the largest <laughs> Asia Pacific Islander online political yeah, organizing it. group. I didn't read those. I just, I mean, it, I thought it was kind of problematic. Um, but, you know, that was the writer's experience. What I yeah. wanted to say was that, like, the movie made a hundred thousand, hundred million dollars or something. It it like made a profit of 
that far outranked all of these other movies that the studios have been trying to like put white faces. Because usually what the studios say is that you need a white protagonist to make sell the movie, which is why they keep replacing people of color roles with white roles. And this movie did fantastic. Moonlight won. You know, like people of color are coming through and making movies and TV shows. So it's not that's not a good answer anymore. Well, the population is different now. Yeah. But you did mention a little earlier in the conversation how how on that, you called it on the edge, I don't know if you said marginal or marginalized Asian Americans are in the whole milieu. Uh, how does that play out? Because, uh, I mean, I think, uh, you know, nowadays, we, you know, we live in California, so the reality is there's lots of everybody here. Yeah, I mean, that's why you know? I moved back to California. I used to live in D.C. when I first do, did political organizing. And it was so frustrating to have these conversations about electoral engagement and everyone's like, oh, we don't we don't we don't get out the Asian American votes because they don't live in swing states and it's just not worth it. And that made me so angry because I knew that my vote mattered in all these progressive political organizations were telling me "Eh, it's too hard. You have to do it in language. You have to do it in culture like that's too difficult. And that pissed me off so much because I knew that my voice as a brown American, had much different issues. As a Muslim South Asian American, you know, like I had much different issues than the mainstream progressive community. And they were, it was very white. Like the issues that they were talking about was very white in the early 2000s. And then in DC, race politics was so black and white when I was living there. And there was just no no, no co- concept of what it meant to be Asian American. So I was very intentional about moving back to Los Angeles so that I could understand what it meant to organize in Asian America. And, you know, LA has a population of 15% Asian Americans. It's largely uh, Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, but that being said, like, it's a hub for all kinds of people. And it's absolutely amazing to organize there because, I don't know, there's just like, you're challenged in a way that you can't be challenged in other places. And that's a lot of fun. Is it segregated there? No. No. I mean, yes, but not for the Asian-American community. I feel like so much of the Asian-American community gets kind of dispersed to the suburbs. Um, we do have a little Bangladesh. It's where... Was it an actual physical place called Little ba- Bangladesh? Yeah. Really? Yeah, it just... Uh, I mean, it's kind of like a six-block span in Koreatown. This is um, a place where when Bangladeshi immigrants came to L.A., you know, L.A.'s... Like, New York is one of those places where planes would fly from internationally and they would land here. Anyways, um, this area is just, like, full of very working-class Bangladeshis. This isn't the this isn't the kinds of folks who are, like, making big money. So it's just it's really fascinating to, to see that when my dad came here, my dad came here in 1969, he, you know, had a spot in that area. And that, I live really close to it now, so I think it's... I don't know. It's just interesting. Yeah. I was going to ask what it's like to be outspoken politically as a woman in the community. Oh, it's very difficult. You know, like like in some mosques, I'm not allowed to speak to the men's side. Now, are you practicing Muslim? And, I mean, is it like a cultural thing? You know. Yeah. Uh, it's a hard question to ask. Um, answer, because, you know, I might not pray every day, but I do fast for Ramadan. I don't eat pork. I don't drink or smoke. And so, and I I find, I'm finding that what it means to answer that question is really complicated because 
there's all kinds of Muslims out there. The pod, my co-podcaster Zara, she's a Shia Muslim and I'm Sunni. In our con- a lot of our conversation on our podcast is us having this conversation. We're like, oh yeah, this is what all Muslims do. And we're like, oh wait, you didn't do that. You celebrate something different than I do. Like what? Like she celebrates Persian New Year, and I think she had always thought of it being connected to her Muslim side. You know, just and I was just like, oh, we don't celebrate Persian New Year. I mean, obviously. Um, but like, no, it's not obvious. <laughs> you're, you're saying yeah. obvious, but um, I mean, it's called Persian New Year. So, but and I'm from Bangladesh, so like, I, you know, I just learned that we're celebrating Bangladesh New Year today, or like today or tomorrow, and I didn't like that was a part of my culture, and I didn't know. So there's all these things that like that we're expected to know both as Muslim women, but also as um, you know, for her Persian and for me Bangladeshi that we're our it's it's a really fun podcast because we get to learn about each other but we also get to learn about ourselves when we ask have these conversations i mean but you're talking about women and just go back to your podcast there's actually no off limit topic yeah we talk about everything so do your parents listen to it no 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 my mom's not around anymore <laughs> yeah. um my dad doesn't listen to it my, i don't think my dad's ever read anything that i've written before yeah so thank god really yeah what kind of what kind of topics do you think uh most people see a hijab and they're like okay well uh they don't they stop asking questions right there uh what do what do you talk about that kind of uh really welcomes open conversation amongst uh, amongst the people who listen to the podcast and think about your lives and well our approach to the podcast is that we're recentering it on our own narrative. So we're very explicit about not defining terms. We're like, you know, if we talk about jinns, we want people to know what jinns are. And jinns are Muslim ghosts. But we don't like say like that's what a that's what a Muslim ghost is, it's a jinn. We just kind of we just start from where we are. Mm-hmm. But then our experiences are so different that when we talk to each other, we it's it's kind of a learning process. Um and we just, we talk about all the things that we have always wanted to talk about. And it, you know what it is? Our podcast is just a conversation that we normally usually have. We just have the microphone on. Nice. And it's been really fulfilling because when people listen into our podcast, we have a lot of white people listen because we got coverage in NPR and Oprah and Wired Magazine. And because of that, you know, we because that's... The, that's white America. They like started listening to us. And um, well, some of the emails that we get say that it's like they're eavesdropping in a conversation they weren't allowed to eavesdrop in. And I think that's the best compliment that I could have gotten because they're challenging themselves to listen to a different perspective. And it's hard for them. And they say, oh, I have to Google things because you didn't explain it. But and it makes me uncomfortable, but I'm okay with it because I want to learn all right just give me one other thing okay jen okay i got that yeah the ghost yeah give me one other thing one other what yeah one other what like well i okay you're talking to somebody who had to explain to somebody else yeah who didn't happen to share my cultural and cultural being from oakland and also black yeah you know a biracial woman who's you know so i said it was like i was trying to make a list of i was like give me your ride or dies and i will blah 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 and I, I didn't, and he said to me, write or die. What are you talking about? You mean write or die? <laughs> and I said, write or dies. 
ride or dies, like from the hip hop. What the, the, what the heck? So I was assuming that we had the same yeah. cultural understanding. Yeah, anyway, yeah. so one of those. One, something that something. you would normally say between the two of you. Oh, uh, like, oh gosh. I don't know what we would say. Um, it's hard out of context. It's totally hard out of context. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I actually have no idea what would... Right, we'd have to have that yeah. conversation. It, was, well, it would probably be about food, right? Like halal food. Yeah. Halal is probably a term we use, halal and haram, where yeah. we don't define it. Right. And we expect people to define it. Okay, you what's know what haram? Is. I know what halal food is. Yeah, what's haram? Halal f- haram is bad. Halal is good. Oh. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. It's that simple? <laughs> it's that simple. <laughs> Uh, I, I think there's like I'm gonna throw it in. Yeah. In the next couple of days. Yeah, it's haram. It's haram. haram. Is like, I mean, technically the term is probably like Muslimly mandated, being banned or something. Um, and halal is, I mean, you know it in the context of halal food, but halal means anything that's deemed as good. Right. And so it's just haram and halal. Uh-huh. So All like right. pork is haram. Right. I, I'm not What's sure. halal? Halal is. Uh, uh, whatever is at Oasis. <laughs> Oasis, the restaurant The here. restaurant, yeah. Yeah, like hummus or... Yeah. or... I mean, yeah, yeah. All the chicken is halal. Okay. I mean, technically chicken is zabiha, which is like a term of like how you cut the meat. Same. And we actually talk about this in our podcast because we didn't know what it was either. Right. Yeah, do <laughs> so some we research like, on uh, your own. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so our our uh, producer uh, comes up with this, this or that segment, so don't okay. overthink this, okay? Okay. All right. Uh, United or Spirit Airlines? Oh. <laughs> that's so hard. I hate Spirit Airlines so much. But do you hate them more than United now? I I think I hate United more. That was terrible. It was an awful thing. It's so uh, terrible. To pull that elderly man off. But Spirit Airlines is really bad. They make you charge. They like charge you if you want to like see, put your seat back. You this know thing about Air, Spirit, Spirit Airlines. Yeah, uh, they have these ads inside the actual airplane that are like bus ads. Do you have to pay for it to like, yeah. watch it? Like I feel like Spirit Airlines, just... you have to pay for everything. Like there's nothing that is free in Spirit. Oh my god. Okay, ebook or a book book. Book book, hands down. Book book. I. Um, have so many friends that are writers and I have all of their books on my shelf and it, you know, it warms my heart. Like I, I feel like, you know, as an environmentalist, I'm supposed to say ebooks so that we're less wasteful, but I enjoy having writer friends and I enjoy having them on my bookshelf. Oh, nice. What are you reading now? I am reading, um, a book that we are reading for work called Trauma Stewardship about, um, self-care when you are a movement worker. Nice. Nice. And it's very heavy, but I, uh, we have to read it for work. We have to read it for 18 million rising and it's like a staff required reading. We've been like, uh, doing chapter by chapter. Are you doing anything from the book right now? How are you taking care of yourself? There's no, like, I mean the book, there, there wasn't anything specific about like, you need to do this now, but just, it's just like about making sure that you have space. There probably is things. I, th- I think it was like workshopping as I was going along. Yeah, but when you were just mentioning, you know, the the feel the feeling of fear yeah. and kind of how your creativity shut down and how this is it's weight. I've been eating a lot of ice cream. Oh, that's is that self care? <laughs> yeah. At a certain point, it becomes. Yeah, at a certain point, it becomes okay. not. Um, <laughs> where Zara and I are calling it the Trump bump. Like, like after Trump got elected, oh we we're just God. like, you know. Oh my God. 
we we gained the Trump bomb. It was the freshman fifteen until it was like yeah. a maniac in the White yeah. House, and, then and now it was it's like, oh god. Y'all can use that term now, Trump bump. <sighs> Kendrick Lamar or Drake? I think Kendrick Lamar, but I haven't heard it yet. We were trying to listen to it at the meeting today. Right, uh, you got to download his his new. Yeah, we and from what I've heard, I love it. I love Kendrick. He's so brilliant. Yeah, he's super smart. And just the voice, huh? Yeah. 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 His, who do you listen? His flow is really tight. And who do you li- do you listen to him, or do you? Li- is there other artists that you really love that you? Um, I listen to Kendrick on Spotify. I don't think I listen to Drake. I I think I listen to Drake when it's on the radio, but I'm not intentional. Kendrick, I'm like intentional, but I actually don't buy CDs anymore. Um, I will give a shout out to the Sweatshop Boys. They are a, um, a duo. One's Riz Ahmed, who is the hot Daisy man on Rogue One, the Star Wars oh. movie. I don't know if you remember. No, you, I'm gonna Google it. Totally did gonna you Google watch it? it. Yeah, but I mean, he was I'm the main to... the main brown guy. Okay. I mean, there's like two. There was two hot brown guys in Rogue One. Um, but he was the South Asian one, and then it's him and this guy who used to be in the, in the in the group Das Racist, so Himanshu Suri. So Hims and Riz Ahmed have this uh, new project called Sweatshop Boys. It's an awesome uh, album which is pushing back on Islamophobia and anti-brownness and just like really smart lyrics. Mm. Apple or Samsung? I think Samsung. I'm looking at my Samsung phone. I think Samsung. You have a Samsung phone? Yeah, but I do not have, um, but I do have an Apple computer. I don't think, I d- I'm very anti-iPhone for yeah. some reason. You know why I'm anti-iPhone? It's very simple because you can text using the swipe, using oh. my Pixel, and you can't. You've got to actually do the long way texting yeah. with the iPhone. So I'm like, you know. You're like, no. No. I w- it took me a really long time to get away from uh, the BlackBerry. The, I, I really liked having buttons. You liked buttons? That's so mm-hmm. old school. I know. Aren't you a millennial? I'm just above millennial. Okay. So there's so, a lot of things about me where, you know how like on Google Analytics, it'll give you like an analysis of what kind of a person you are? Yeah. I'm a late adopter, apparently. <laughs> so I don't take up new technology real fast. It like takes me a while to pick it up. Well, you might be a late adopter, adopter on technology, but uh, in terms of the politics, pretty cutting edge. Thank you. Uh, how, how would you describe your politics? I mean, let me just ask the question differently. We have a lot of terrible things happening yeah. in the world, and uh, the people who listen to this podcast, we're all really wanted to come together and and uh, around some visions that we have in common. What, what what's the vision that you have for this country? I I mean, my vision for the country is a just, an equitable nation where we all can just get along and people don't die before their time. There's so many people dying now before their times. And there's where we have the ability to cure people. We have the ability to, you know, take homeless people off the street. We have the ability to breathe fresh air. And there are capitalists out there that are trying to not let that happen. And I, I just don't think that's fair. That's at the root of like my, my politics. Um, Anything in particular about the community that you're in, the Muslim community, mm-hmm. you're in many, many communities as an intersectional leader, but what's your what's your vision, what's your hope uh, for Muslims right now? I mean, like, I feel silly saying this, but, like, I just want to be seen as human, right? Isn't, isn't that, like, that's, I shouldn't be asking for that. That should just be normal, but 
the way that dehumanizing of brown people has been happening, especially because of the political rhetoric from the campaign. It just, you know, I, I just want to be able to walk down the street and be okay. Yes. That's not happening. And I, I mean, to be fair, like that's not happening for all kinds of brown and black people and women. Women can't walk down particular streets, you know, and it's just that's the way that white supremacy has put its fingers into all of our lives lives to use fear to manipulate us is terrible and that's that's what i'm fighting back against but your vision is something bigger and more beautiful than that it's like people's safety and uh um yeah people's safety i you know like the who was who was i talking to i was talking to i was on a panel talking to a japanese american leader um in los angeles her name's nobuko and she was saying, she's like this this well-known elder activist in the community. She was talking about how the environment is all just connected to how we're living in this network and the people in power are trying to get, you know, destroy the environment. I think my vision is for, I keep going back to the environment, like where we can breathe, where we have trees, where the ocean is, isn't, you know, dropping, where we have, you know, ice at the poles which isn't happening anymore. You know, I just keep, the barrier reef is 75% gone. You know, like all of the environmental things that keep our earth alive just falling apart. Mm. And I just want to have that back. Me too. <laughs> I want that too. You know? I want that too. And I want some, I'm, I feel like we're fighting for politics that doesn't yet exist. Oh, and, yeah. Um, and that is both a, a miracle in this time and also a challenge because it requires great faith. And um, you are going around the world in great faith. I want to thank you so much, Taz Ahmed, for coming on Democracy Thanks in Color. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. I love how our worlds keep reconnecting. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Democracy in Color is a project of Power Pack Plus. This episode was recorded in Emeryville, California, produced by Lula Matute, and edited by Anthony Hernandez. Special thanks to our guest, Taz Ahmed. You can listen to future episodes on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can also connect with us on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Tell a friend, a colleague, or a neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. So until next time, thanks for joining us.